Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the show. This is Yona Bud. You are on the Road to Recovery. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy you dialed in with us this evening. We're uh, in the studio tonight with Natasha, I believe, and Heather as well with on our team. Uh, we got a lot to do. It's a busy show, so many things to share, and we're happy that you're able to share it with us. And if you want to chime in later on in the show uh, for the sub- segments that make sense, 416-870-6400. In the second hour, we're going to take calls and talk to people about the subject matter that we're discussing. We've got some guests coming up uh, later on in the show as well. Some interesting people to talk about interesting things. But tonight, right here, right now, I want to talk about something that's kind of sticking in my craw. It's this whole COVID thing. It's this whole pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. It's because of the pandemic. Everything's because of the pandemic. This happened because of the pandemic. I can't get help because of the pandemic. We can't get parts because of the pandemic. Like, I'm a mindful guy, meaning that I live in a mindfulness lifestyle, in a mindfulness world. I live for today. I work through today. I try to make some plans around tomorrow and future plans like trips and stuff into the future. But short of that, I live in today. I don't live in yesterday. As far as I'm concerned, the the pandemic is over in terms of it debilitating what we do. All it means right now is you got to be careful. And you know what? Listen closely. Jump in here. I, I know you're just tuning in right now. And if you're just tuning into the station, you don't know who you're listening to. My name is Yona Butta. I'm the host of Road to Recovery here on 640. And glad you can join us. Listen close. You know, washing our hands, not touching things that we shouldn't, wearing a mask in places where people might be coughing and sneezing just makes sense. It's not a COVID thing, at least in my mind, just in my mind, right? My show, I get to speak in my mind. It just doesn't make sense. It's easy. Keep a mask in your pocket. You pull it out if you need it. If you don't, you don't. Who cares? Wash your hands. Keep hand sanitizer on you. I keep it in my pocket or in my handbag or whatever I'm carrying around. I I wash my hands constantly with sanitizer. And just I used to even before the pandemic. You know, you get vaccinated if you're really worried about it. And you should be. (laughs) So you should be getting vaccinated. Again, my opinion. You know, I've had my fourth. I'm waiting for my fifth. As soon as they allow it, I'm going to do it. And I expect that I'm going to have to get vaccinated, by the way, every year, like I do for my flu vaccines and all the other vaccines I need to take to make sure that I'm okay. I take them. I use them. I'm at that age where I need to, and I should. I pay attention, and I got nothing to lose. It's just a needle. It hurts for a minute, and then it's over. But what do the experts say about this pandemic? What do they say? When will COVID end? Many of the more of these waves to come. How many more waves? Well, according to Dr. Uh, Susie Hota, she's the medical director of infection prevention and control at Toronto-based University Health Network. I don't think we can see into the future enough to understand the directions we're going in for each of those variables. We're going to have variants. We're going to have waves. The waves are going to be like the flu season. It's going to come in like October, November, December, January, you know, like when kids get sick, when we get sick, when people start sneezing and coughing and touching things, and then we start touching things that they're touching and so on. So if you don't want to get the flu, you get a flu vaccine like I do. And the flu, the little bits of flu that I've gotten over the years that I've been getting the vaccine, no big deal. So I'm off for a day. I'm not really, really sick. Thank God I haven't been really, really sick with you know any kind of you know infectious disease or something spreadable. 
for years and years because I am very careful about what I do. And as far as the, as far as, you know, using COVID or the pandemic as an excuse why restaurant service is so poor or why there's no chicken or why they ran out of halabans or why, you know, this isn't available. This isn't available. I get it. It's a supply chain thing. I do. I get it. And now people are flipping to the fact that it's a problem because of the, 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 the Russian occupation of the Ukraine or the war in the Ukraine. I get that too, but got to move past it, man. We got to move past. We're going to do the best we can do with what we've got. If they don't have this, buy that. If you can't get this, go get that instead. If you can't go here, go there. Plan B, always having a plan B. Because it's very easy. If you want to get caught up in this whole pandemic, virus, COVID thing, it's really easy to make it make that an excuse for why you're not going to go here, or you're not going to see this person, or you're not going to send your kids to summer camp, or you're, you know, this isn't going to happen, or that's not going to happen. You, you got to get past it because we're going to have to live with this likely for the rest of our lives, this and other forms of it, clearly. So we're getting better and better in this country of providing for our own vaccines, making our own vaccines. We're getting better and better in this country in terms of being able to identify and, and uh, uh, call to action quickly the, result, the, the resources necessary to get on top of this. We, we have an outstanding record worldwide in terms of how we've managed the pandemic, whether you like it or not, you like the politicians or not, whether it's them or not. As a country, we did a great job. Kudos to all of you that are out there, myself included. Pat ourselves on the back. We're doing a great job. But waiting for it to be over, it's not going to be over. It's not going to be over. It's something we have to learn to live with. And we learn to live with it by being cautious and careful. Being cautious and careful, washing your hands, wearing a mask in an environment. I, I carry a mask in my pocket just because if I walk in somewhere and there's people coughing and sneezing and they're going to be anywhere around me. Like I was in a store not long ago, maybe a week, week and a half ago. This guy coughed into his hand and then took two different containers of milk out of the, out of the fridge, the freezer part, the fridge part of the store, the, the refrigerated part of the store, excuse me, and then put one of them back and then took one with him. The one he put back had his snotty, you know, virusy hand prints and stuff all over it. I see it all the time. I don't know if I'm going to pick that one up the next time I go into a different store. Maybe it's the next guy that touches his face. I don't know. But I wash my hands. I wipe things down. I use hand sanitizer. I avoid crowds where there's people sneezing and coughing or it's so closely, you're, closely, you're so close to one another, you can hear them breathing on the back of your neck. I don't like those environments anyway, COVID or not, not changing my life. I'm out visiting people. I'm having all kinds of backyard activities and front porch activities and meeting people in the park and, you know, having people going to people's homes who I know, and I feel confident and comfortable with, you know, how they approach staying clean and virus free. So listen, my dear friends, I don't want this to be something that holds you back from having an incredible summer. We've got such an incredible summer ahead of us here in Ontario. What a great place to live. So many things available. Don't let the fear of a pandemic concern you. If you're really concerned and you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're really concerned and you are vaccinated, just wash your hands and keep a mask in your pocket. And I'm telling you, it's all going to be good. And if not, you can call me and let me know that my advice wasn't worth listening to. When we come back, tons more stuff to do. We're going to talk to Dr. Monica Vermani. She's a clinical psychologist and author of a book. We're talking about 
toxic relationships, one of my favorite conversations. I, I, I don't like them. I don't think they're good for us. That's why they're toxic. Uh, when we come back, we're going to share with her. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Okay, and welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. You are on the road to recovery. My host, you are, I am your host this evening, Yona Bud. Nice to be here. And you're listening to 640 Toronto. Uh, so much that we got to do tonight, but well on our way there. The first stop here after uh, our opening is um, talking about, you know, I have patients that call me all the time, uh, both uh, teenagers and adults. And, you know, they're, they're constantly talking about being in, you know, wanting to change their life, wanting to do better, wanting to feel better, wanting to, you know, make better choices. And, and then we talk about the relationships they're in. And honestly, you know, I, I find myself shaking my head more and more every day saying to myself, like, dude, like, don't you see what's in front of you? Like what you're telling me is she does this or he does that. Uh, and we tend to stay in these, what we call toxic relationships um, because, you know, a lot of reasons they're easy. They feel good at the time. Uh, we don't think we deserve better. Uh, you know, you feel like a victim. So you stay a victim, whatever, right? There's all kinds of real psychological reasons why uh, people stay in relationships and, and not necessarily romantic relationships only. Sometimes people stay at home with their family, their folks, and sometimes that's the most toxic relationship in your life. Or, or you're working somewhere where your boss is just not nice, doesn't make you feel good about you. I always say if you're in a relationship with somebody who doesn't make you feel good about yourself, you you're, are in the wrong relationship. I have someone who's going to join us right here right now as a guest. Her name is Dr. Monica Vermani. Dr. Vermani, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Yona. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you being here with us. Uh, she's a clinical psychologist and author of A Deeper Wellness, Conquering Stress, Mood, Anxiety, and Traumas. Tells us uh, it's easier to stay with a beast because we understand the one, or we understand that that one we don't. Uh, stay with the beast because better the better the better the animal you know than the animal you don't know, doctor. Oh yeah, that's many times we're creatures of habit. We're raised that way, and so many times I think you know we're raised in a society where we want to bring in control, we want to bring in safety, security, and that comes with sometimes you know staying in dynamics that we're comfortable and we're we're known how to operate in. And so, you know, that phrase out there, it's better to live with the devil, you know, than the devil out there yeah. comes from a place of it's better to live with what dynamics I know how to function in versus my thoughts going to, if I change something here and I enter a new situation, what if I can't handle it? So really, you know, staying in toxic relationships. And I like how you brought it up. Like it's, it's about relationships with people, but the truth is, in today's world, we have toxic relationships with food, with alcohol, with yeah. coworkers, with bosses, yeah. Yeah. with family dynamics, children, and partnerships. And so whatever your unhealthy, toxic relationship is, many times we stay stuck in them because we don't know better, but we also are scared of, if I bring change in, can I handle or am I able to cope well in new dynamics? So it's really about self-esteem and self-doubt. A hundred percent. So um, where I'm going with this now, as you're talking is, so what I see, and I'm sure you see as well, uh, you actually practice clinically as well, correct? You're, you have a, a practice where you see people with this type of trauma? Yes. I work uh, with mood, anxiety, stress, trauma, and couples, families. 
Oh, no. God. Busy, busy person. You handle it all. That's great. Um, clearly, you have a great handle on it, too, by the way. So I guess what we're talking about is I'm already a victim. Mm-hmm. So I get stuck in this victim mindset because I'm afraid to unvictimize myself by trying to go somewhere else. A, because I don't think I can be. I'm just used to what I have. Maybe I don't deserve it. Like all of the above. Yep. I think, you know, many of us uh, were creatures of habit as we started this talk about. And so there's blueprints being repeated. Blueprints from childhood, parents, dynamics, society, traumas, bullying, things like this. And that reinforces, yeah, maybe I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable. Mm -hmm. And so it is important for us to sometimes look at our self-esteem level. Um, Am I tolerating patterns that I've seen in the past? because I grew up in them and they're just not healthy, but I don't know better. Or am I also in a place where I feel less than capable or less than worthy? And it's about telling yourself you deserve better because you do. And it's replacing negative thoughts or negative narratives, as I call them, of stories that I'm less than, or I don't deserve better. I'm damaged that people have to replace and tell yourself, like, I deserve better and believe in your higher and better version of yourself. Yeah. Ending toxic relationships, whether it's habits or relationships that are, you know, dynamically with people, it's important for you to knew, know that these are choices we make. And sometimes we do the best we can with what we know. We need to bring in resources or other people to help us know better. And sometimes our parents did the best they could with what they knew, but they might have not given you all the tools to work on your self-esteem or feel deserving or stand in your power and um, empower yourself to make your life higher and better and healthier. So uh, a couple of things here. We, you keep, we keep talking about families, um, you know, two things. So I'm going to come at it a couple of ways. So I often talk to parents who want me to help their children, their teenage children. Sometimes they're 20 odd, 30 odd year old children. Uh, mm-hmm. They still treat them like children, which is probably half the problem. But the, the, they, they say, you know, why they choose all these friends and the, these kind of people and those kind of people. And she hangs out with these kind of guys and he hangs out with these kind of people. And why can't he find or she find themselves, you know, hanging around with nicer people. Um, and my answer is, you know, your son, your daughter, you know, has a, you know, substance abuse issue, mood disorder, not working, not leaving the house, highly depressive, and Mm -hmm. likely they're going to hang with people that are similar. Um, So sometimes it's just, you know, broken leads to broken, right? Um, And I guess in the proper group environment, that's a good thing. But um, I don't know why I'm rambling here. So I guess the question is, once once you're in that class full of, you know, the same types of people stress, stress with the same things you're stressed with. It's hard to get out whether it's toxic or not. You bet. And so, like you said, misery likes miserable company and oftentimes like attracts like. So if I'm feeling broken, not good enough, and I meet friends who also feel that way, I feel they relate and they understand me and they accept me as I am. And it's really about feeling accepted. And when you feel less than it's hard to even approach healthier people or healthier groups of people because you don't feel like you belong. You don't feel like they would accept you. You don't feel worthy to be there. And That's here's the yeah, comes and, back to self-esteem, right? Working on yourself yeah. so that you can become a higher, better version of you. And don't get me wrong. The people who help us through transitions, like if I'm not in a good place with substances and et cetera, you know, people come in your life and sometimes make you feel supported at that phase. But as you evolve and grow, you kind of have to see friendships and people coming in and out of your life as you evolve and you will evolve 
And it is important for you to bring in new people that help you grow. I want to bring in a, another level here. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I find that this is really uh, prevalent, uh, certainly in my practice. Um, often the most toxic people in my patients' lives are in fact their family. So for example, I'm treating a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 15-year-old, uh, 21-year-old, um, and you know we do good work and then they go back home. Uh, mm -hmm. So they keep going back to the toxic environment. Sometimes those are the most toxic because of codependency, because of the abuse that we might settle for, because that's how we were raised. And maybe that's how our parents were raised. Um, that becomes more difficult to walk away from when yes. it's mom, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, somebody like that. Um, do you find the same? And if so, maybe you can provide some, some suggestions here with a little bit of time we've got left on sort of how people break away from toxic relationships. And moreover, what happens if it's where you live or it's your home? It often is where you live and that's where it begins. That's why I said there's blueprints and patterns that we repeat in life that maybe start off with an unhealthy dynamic at home that leads to people pleasing or putting others or unhealthy habits in the world as you're an adult. And so it is common for us to recognize unhealthy patterns at home. It's not about changing others. It's about working on yourself. Yeah, Parents right. did the best they could with what they had. Yeah. And if they want to change, great for them. But if they don't want to change, doesn't mean you can't. And yeah, so many times I say when you're in pain, you spill over on tethers and our parents do that. And when you're in health, you also spill over on tethers. As you set boundaries, work on yourself, be healthier, you know, choose differently so that you don't repeat patterns. You're also having a ripple effect on the family members and the dynamics there where you are healthier in an unhealthy family dynamic too. But the first step to treatment is awareness. You need yeah. to have awareness of how my dynamics are holding me back in life from being the ultimate amazing person I want to be. What's I holding me back? And if yeah. it's my family, who do I bring in to teach me how to set boundaries with them? I find that often my patients use their family dynamic as an excuse to not get to the next level. Uh, yeah. And we, and we work through that. You know, I often use the term, you know, I, I'm hoping that I, you know, if I'm talking to a patient, someone or, or, that I'm working with, you know, it, or my, my, my discussion is usually around how to make them bulletproof. I said, because we can't change the world around you, or in fact, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, but we can change you, help you change enough so mm -hmm. that you can be bulletproof. And like you said, make good choices and then put boundaries around those choices. You call it bulletproof. I call it Teflon. I'm like, whatever sticks to you right now and bugs you and ruminate and you ruminate on, let's become Teflon so things can slide off easier instead of you suffering and, and, and taking it personally. I love it. I just love it. I, I love all about it. So uh, real quick, I'm in a bad relationship. What's the first thing I do to get out of it? Tell yourself you deserve better. Yeah, man. Right. I'm talking to Dr. Mo Don Dr. Monica Vermani. She's a clinical psychologist and author of a book that you, you got to read, A Deeper Wellness, Conquering Stress, Mood, Anxiety, and Traumas. Um, and she's uh, talking about this stuff, obviously knows a lot about it. Dr. Vermani, if anybody wants to see you for treatment, how do they do that? You can go straight to my website, uh, www.drmonicavermani.com, D-R-M-O-N-I-C-A-V-E-R-M-A-N-I. And all my resources are there, including links to Amazon for the book, as well as an online life lessons platform for resources and articles that I've been posting throughout the pandemic about mental health and little tips you can bring in just to be healthier versions of yourself. 
I love it so much. I appreciate you so much for being here tonight and staying up late. We'll have you back for sure and share some more. Dr. Monica Vermeni, she got a book out there. She has a practice. You got to go find her. This lady knows what she's doing. When we come back, we got more stuff to do. You are on the road to recovery. I'm your host, Yona Bud. You're on 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host. Thank you for joining us. You're dialed into 640 Toronto, and we appreciate you being here. You know, if you've been watching in the news over the last, I don't know, weeks, months, years, less, maybe year, year and a half, maybe longer, uh, the story about R. Kelly, you know, the, the famed uh, R&B superstar uh, who was uh, found to be guilty of sexually abusing young fans, including some who were just children. Uh, and it was systemic. It went on for years and years. And, you know, it, it, you made, you know, here's one of the accusers told the court in New York, you made me do things that broke my spirit. I literally wished I would die because of how you made me feel. One unnamed survivor said, and she was addressing Kelly directly at the time. She said, do you remember that? As he hit his hands into the uh, table that he was sitting at and buried his head. Uh, he was given a $100,000 fine and a 30-year sentence in jail. He's planning to appeal his conviction. He denies his wrongdoing. Uh, victims are no longer preyed on individuals. We once were, said another victim at the uh, sentencing hearing. There wasn't a day in my life, she says, up until this moment that I actually believed that the judicial system would come through for black and brown girls, she said, outside the, the uh, courthouse. Another woman sobbing and sniffling addressed the court by saying Kelly's conviction renewed her faith in the legal system. The woman said Kelly victimized her uh, when she went to a concert when she was 17. Um, he's a human being, according to his lawyer, uh, Jennifer uh, Bongine. Um, she was devastated by the sentence. Like, really? Come on. And um, widespread. This is widespread. There talks about girls at the, at the young age of 15, um, who uh, at the trial evidence was presented about a fraudulent marriage scheme um, where uh, R&B Fana, uh, I, uh, uh, Alaya in 1994, when she was 15, she was impregnated by this guy. They faked a marriage certificate, making her look like she was 18. He was 27 at the time. Like just a horrible situation. And you know what? It, it's what I want to talk about tonight is not about the trial so much or, you know, there's how many people knew about this. I mean, there were there were people in, in this man's life that knew exactly what was going on and just allowed it to continue. And we hear that over and over and over again, right? We hear it over and over again about people who understand and know about the abuse. You know, the what's his name? Epstein's uh, um, uh, Giselle. Um, she was just recently uh, convicted the other day, maybe a couple of days ago. Giselle, Giselle McKenzie for doing the same thing. Um, I believe that's her name. Uh, but the, you know, people know about it, right? People heard about it and they don't do anything about it. I mean, people that are around these superstars and these wealthy people, they, they just allow it to happen. Some of them actually uh, make it happen in terms of, you know, going out and soliciting, uh, like, uh, like, you know, we found with the Epstein support, people were actually soliciting young girls, young boys to participate in horrible situations. And the current lawyers, here's where the story is going. First of all, I want you to understand it's not just about sex. It's about the traumatized, how traumatized victims are when they're in situations like this, how they're led to believe that they're worthless. They're, they have no real value. They're just 
you know, there to meet the needs of the person who controls them. And he, in fact, as Kelly controlled him, controlled his victims like so many other perpetrators. There's a level of control, psychological control. It's not about the sex so much as it's about the control, about having, you know, one, one girl was, uh, there's one of the stories here talks about a, a, a young girl who was forced to spread feces all over her face because she didn't obey uh, Kelly's rules. He had, he had rules of the house, right? Another other girl had to walk and crawl across the floor like a dog and beg for her food and eat out of a dish on the floor. That's not sex. That's horrible abuse. Horrible abuse. Systemic premeditated, choreographed, organized abuse. So here's the thing. Why am I coming at this right now? Here's where I'm coming at this. His lawyers say that they argue that he shouldn't have gotten more than 10 years, and I'll tell you why, what their story is. Their story is he was traumatized as a kid. Yeah, we're talking about the traumatized kid defense. Well, they talked about him being traumatized. He was involved in severe, prolonged childhood sexual abuse, poverty, and violence. As an adult with liter literacy deficiencies, the star was repeatedly defrauded and financially abused, often by people he protected. His lawyers go on to go on to say, so what? He had so much money. If he, he had to be somewhat enlightened enough to know, and the people around him enlightened enough to know that he could get help. He could afford the best help on the planet. He could have a full-time therapist with him at all times for a whole lot less money than the people he paid to secure and attract and subdue and coerce young girls into this guy's harem, if you will, into his violence and abuse and demoralizing behavior. Is that a, is that a defense? He was, he was abused and traumatized as a kid? You know, I did, I did some work. I do some work, actually, still do some work. And we often talk about it on the show with kids that are involved in guns and gangs and gang violence and gun, gun violence and so on. And I, I interviewed a, a, a psychiatrist from a, a hospital in London, and he's an expert on adolescent crime, you know, violent adolescent crime. And we talked about it. And I said, like, what makes a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old pull the trigger with a gun pointed right at someone. And I'm not talking about these, these little wannabe gangsters that spray bullets everywhere and don't hit anybody. But I'm talking about people that, you know, young people, what, what makes them do what they do? And, and, and the doctor said to me, it happens in the womb. When these young children are in the womb and they're, and they're exposed to violence and loudness and, 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 and uh, screaming and yelling and, you know, drug activity and, and, and all kinds of late night activities and so on, they tend to come out violent, like mixed up and violent right out of the womb. So I don't know, you know, uh, whether Kelly has problems. I'm, I, I feel bad for, for him from that perspective. He could, you know, certainly could get help now in the 30 years he's going to be in jail, hopefully longer. There's more cases that coming out, but it's not just him. There's lots of powerful people, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of people out there that have the means by which they can get away with stuff that's just not right. It's illegal. It's dangerous. It's offensive. It's abusive. It's inhumane. It's not necessary. So using something like a traumatized youth defense and he should have less time doesn't rub with me. I'm usually one for giving people another chance and so on and seeing the benefit of the doubt and all that. I just can't see it here. This went on for way too long. This man could have gotten the help he needed and probably would have saved a lot of abused young women 
who can't sleep at night, who require medication to survive, and who will never, ever be the person they could have been had they not been subjected to all of his activities for the years that he was able to get away with it. So 30 years, I don't think is enough. Hopefully he's going to get more, uh, but uh, no sympathy here from this guy. That's how I feel. Anyway, when we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud. Thanks for joining us. This is 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to Road to Recovery. I am your host, Yona Bud, here on 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us. I know you have choices, and we're glad you chose us. Um, a lot of stuff to do tonight. We're getting ready to take a big break here after this segment so you can get up and stretch your legs and go get something healthy to eat and drink. And uh, if you smoke, go do that. Other, if you don't, that's even better. And uh, then come back because we're going to be busy for the back hour as well. Uh, you know, the, there's a discussion that goes around in the world that I live in and work in uh, around recovery processes and what works, what doesn't work. You know, there's people that swear by uh, AA or NA or any of the 12 step recovery stuff. And that's, you know, where they work through a big book. And uh, there are 12 steps to recovery and you work through those steps. Uh, and they're primarily the steps themselves and the whole energy, if you will, in what are called the rooms, uh, that energy unto itself is generally the, you know, given the benefit of higher power being, you know, GOD driven in some way, shape or form. So for some people, it doesn't work. It just don't make that, you know, higher power GOD connection. Uh, they're actually offended by it. They never go back. Um, and they're kind of left floundering or have been for some time. And then along came smart recovery, which is a more scientific intellectual, or I shouldn't say intellectual, more of a academic version of recovery. It focuses more on you doing the work, uh, very little, if any, higher power mentioned. And then there's lots of little things in between. You know, the bottom line is to get healthy, to get sober, to get clean, you need to work at that process. And if you have support programs that work for you, whether it's smart recovery or AA or church groups or synagogue groups or whatever works for you, but you still got to do the therapy. You still got to figure out why you got there. My guest this evening is, uh, her name is Peg O'Connor. She's a PhD, and uh, she writes in her book, Higher and Friendlier Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Um, Dr. O'Connor has um, been sober now for 34 years, so a huge kudos, Mazel Tov, and way to go for her. Uh, she believes that the philosophy helped her to get and remain sober, but she avoided Alcoholics Anonymous for the first 20 years of her sobriety, sobriety excuse me, because of exactly that the concept of Howard Power. Good evening, Dr. O'Connor or Peg. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Yona. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, first of all, a big hug. If you were here, give you if we, were, if we were still allowed to be in studio, I'd be giving you a giant hug for the 34 years. Um, and uh, you're an inspiration for anyone out there that's struggling to try to get through. It's still an everyday thing though, ain't it? It is. I mean, life is every day. Life is just the sum total of all of our small, everyday acts that we take a lot for granted and other things about which we need to be more intentional. And sobriety clearly is in the latter category. We need to be intentional about it. How did, how did you, you, you know, you, you avoided AA for the first 34 years. So you're talking the first 20 years, uh, you've been at it a long time now. Um, so going back then, smart recovery, I don't think was an option. What, what, what worked for you? And um, how did you manage around the naysayers that said, hey, if you're not in AA, you're not doing anything? It was a variety of things. Um, 
I've always treated my sobriety like a gigantic experiment. Um, I had had a horrible car accident back in 1987, and I was in the hospital, and a nurse came to offer me some pain medications. And I had the clear thought, Betty Ford, here I come. And that is a reference to the Betty Ford Treatment Center out in California, started by the former first lady, Betty Ford. And I realized that um, if I were to start taking painkillers, I was going to be going down a bad path very quickly because I knew how my drinking had really just took off like like I couldn't even imagine. And at that point, I decided I was going to try not to drink. I had tried repeatedly and had failed repeatedly, but I decided that I was just going to treat it as an experiment to see how far I could go. And that each day would be an opportunity for me to renew that commitment to experimenting with sobriety. And at times I, I say, I feel like my sobriety is a phase. I would like for it to be the phase of the rest of my life. And I realize that yeah. it really does come down to me yeah. and the choices that I make and the kind of willingness I have to remain flexible in my sobriety. So yeah, about the first 20 years, I didn't have anything to do with AA. I'd only ever been to one AA meeting in my entire life. And that's when I was in college and that was not going to work for me. And I met people who were involved with AA and I thought, well, I like these people. I can imagine hanging out with them. And so I started to go to more AA meetings, but I still had a great reluctance about AA because of the language of higher power. I didn't believe in a providential God doing things for me. And I always struggled and thought I was being dishonest by being there. Um, So I still have a relationship with AA that is um, somewhat contentious and a little fraught. I really like the people, but I struggle with the program. You know what? I couldn't have said it better myself. I hear that from so many uh, so many of my patients, I really like the people, you know, the, so they like the, they like the activities. You like the, you know, the, the chicken wings after and the, you know, standing outside for a smoke for half an hour. They like all that part. But when sometimes they get in the rooms, listen, I got patients that thrive in there. Right. But um, yes, so absolutely. The, the, the question I have for you is in your discovery of a transformation process that worked for you, um, how much therapy played in that role? Oh, oh, plenty. I, I mean, I, I could populate a football team with the number of, of therapists that I have seen, some of whom worked really, really well for me and others of whom didn't work well for me. And other times I didn't feel like doing the work. Yeah. So I, I believe that for as many paths as there are into addiction, there needs to be an equal or greater number out of addiction, which is why I'm glad there's smart recovery. There's life ring. There's AA. There's women for sobriety. There are fabulous psychologists and other counselors working individually with people. For me, there's something important about being with others who struggle in the same way. There's something about being with people who fundamentally understand what I'm going through. Even if they haven't had the exact same trajectory, they're, they're in the same ballpark with me. And, you know, there's nothing I think more important than feeling that others understand you because that's important for you in coming to understand yourself. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree wholeheartedly. You know, one of the things, you know, some of the stuff that we think about here as we're as I'm working through, you know, listening to you, and you know, it, it's I tell people all the time, getting sober or getting clean, getting sober, getting you know, getting a handle on your mental health or your you know your whatever substance issues are or you know uh, at risk activities. It, it, it's all about where that comes from. 
in my mind, you know, as a therapist for over four decades. I mean, it's all about where it comes from. Like what, what are the triggers or what are the situations or what are the traumas? We end up finding traumas, as I'm sure, you know, way buried underneath stuff that people didn't even know about, but what are, what are those trigger points that lead you to feel like you need to get high today or, or, or get drunk today or go gamble away everything or have sex with people you don't know, or, you know, whatever it is, right. Eat too much, don't eat enough, whatever it may be. And, and, what I found in going through the big book with, you know, several of my patients, as much as that's not my, my, my thing. And, you know, my, my uh, not what I recover from. Um, and um, it doesn't, it, it actually doesn't speak well about the concept of therapy in the process. Uh, so that's where my kind of spidey sense lit up years ago. Um, and I'm still have a hard time getting around the fact that people are, are led to believe that you can go into an environment like smart recovery or, or AA or any of these uh, phenomenal group support systems and get to the reasons why you do and get the therapy around that without actually doing that kind of work. That kind of scares me a little bit. How about you? Well, I, I think you're right to put the emphasis on doing the work. I mean, recovery is work. Being in therapy is work. Coming to have self-knowledge is, is work. Yes. And I think, there's, there's an important need for there to be very intentional, individualized guidance and counseling and therapy. I, I think that that oftentimes is an ineliminable part of coming to know yourself and to understand why you've done what you've done or how you tend to respond to situations. And I also think that I learned so much about myself from hearing others talk about their experiences that are similar to mine. And I can say of that person, wow, they did what I did and look at them now. I mean, I'm aware at all times being a person in recovery, very out about my recovery that I feel as if I have an obligation to kind of live my recovery out loud. You never know when someone's going to look at you and say, well, if she can do it, and I've heard what she was up to when she was drinking and using, maybe there's some hope for me. So I think one of the wonderful things that help happens with good individualized therapy and in good mutual help groups or support groups is that we hold up mirrors of possibility for each other. Because I think one of the things that addiction does is it, what makes my ability to imagine, to think about what's possible only in terms of the bad things. And I think that one of the things that we need to do early in recovery is to learn how to imagine and to learn how to hope for good things. You know, it's amazing you say that. I, honestly, I wish you were sitting here right now. I'd give you another one of those hugs. You know, uh, the, one of the first things I do with my patients when I sit down uh, is we talk about what, what does it look like later? And I don't mean like you don't want to get them all ang- people all anxious about living in the future. But, you know, as much as, you know, you're broken now and you feel really like the world's come to an end for you at the moment. Okay, but we're going to work our way out of this. And the way to work our way out of this, and I explained to them, one of the things that keeps me working so hard is pictures of different vacations I get a chance to take in three or four months when I'm burnt out again, right? So I'm driven by the picture of what that that beach looks like or what that pool looks like or or what great food they're going to have at that resort or in that country or, or not, whatever, right? That motivates me. So having that picture of what that beach looks like for you you know, what, what is that, which is exactly what you're saying. You know, what is, what does recovery look like and, and get a sneak, a sneak picture today. And it gets clearer and clearer every day you work at it. 
so that when you finally see it and go, wow, I'm here, I've arrived, I'm at the place I worked so hard for, now I have to work hard at staying here. Uh, it's, but it's rarely broken down for people like that. It seems to be, I'm sure you probably encountered the same thing. It's, it's so black and white. We got about a minute left. I think that's right. And, and I think that many of us do need to learn how to imagine. Yeah. And we, we take it for granted that everyone knows how to imagine. But the other thing, I think the biggest achievement is when not only can we imagine something good happening to us, but that we can truthfully believe that we deserve it. Uh, I mean, I think people in active addiction oftentimes believe we deserve everything that everything that's bad that happens to us. Yeah. It's a far greater achievement to say we deserve good things. It's that, interesting. I think, is crucial. Yeah, it's interesting. Before I let you go, uh, if you, I don't know if you're listening to the show earlier on segment two, we we were talking about uh, toxic relationships and how oh, you know how most of you know my patients and we had a, a, a psychologist on um, a couple before segment before yours, uh, a couple before yours, excuse me, and you know she was saying in her practice as well that you know people just don't think they deserve better. So I think you really, um, you, you know, I think you you did a really great job with. Um, with uh, explaining in, in, you know, in, in the parts of your book, I was able to kind of quickly glance through that, you know, that people deserve better. You do deserve better. And, 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 and you, sh and there's a chance for you, right? Um, how do people learn more about you and about your book before I let you go? The easiest way is on my website, which is pegoconnorauthor.com. And this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, is available for pre-ordering on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the usual suspects. And the publication date is August 15th. So I only read, what, a cursory overview? I think you only read a cursory overview, but we'd happily send you an advanced copy Yay! if you wanted it. With your signature on it? And a, and a, hey, free and, stuff, free and stuff, a, and nothing a, better. I don't, it's not the free, it's a one day when you're richer and more famous. I want to ah. have that book. And I want a dog print from your favorite little doggy there too, right? He, he makes plenty of mud prints. Happy to oblige <laughs> on that. On Thank that you front. so much, Peg O'Connor. She's a doctor and uh, just a really cool lady. Got it going on and in recovery and helping others scream. She screams out loud and hopefully you pay attention and we're going to definitely have her back. When we come back, we got lots more to do. Take your break. We'll be right back real soon. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Hopefully you enjoyed your break, got up, stretched your legs a little bit, got what you needed to eat, and do whatever you needed to do. Now you strap yourself back in for the balance of this trip today on this Road to Recovery. Good evening. I'm Yona Bud. If you're just dialing in, you're on 640 Toronto, and we thank you for joining us. Um, you know, just sitting here the last couple of days, last night, tonight, with my little doggy, and um, his name is Siggy Sigmund, uh, Sigmund Freud. We call him Siggy. And uh, he's about seven pounds of absolute delorable, delorable, adorable uh sometimes he's despicable but mostly adorable and i and i'm listening i'm looking at him while we're listening to the fireworks everywhere and we had fireworks close to us last night and there's fireworks again today we live close enough to enough places that we can hear it and sometimes if we're fortunate we can see it and i think to myself about the sounds that the kids hear in certain neighborhoods where gun violence is prevalent and uh, a lot of gunshots uh, heard throughout the neighborhoods and making them feel exceptionally unsafe. And it's easy to pick up Siggy and give him a little cuddle and tell him it's going to be okay. Not as easy to do with the seven-year-old or four-year-old or 12-year-old in your neighborhood or in your house. 
And, uh, yeah. Anyway, so we're talking tonight about gun violence again. People have sent me messages wanting to know why we do this. Uh, we do this because we're committed to providing a voice to those that are trying to make a difference. Uh, and, uh, it's what I can offer. I, you know, we have a show. I have a show. I'm able to, uh, provide for, uh, media exposure whenever and however possible because it makes a difference to me. It makes a difference to my, my guests that will be joining us here shortly. Um, it makes a difference to a lot of people that are living in certain communities and don't have a voice. So tonight we try to provide them with a voice. We have, ever since I've been broadcasting, I've been hanging out with Marcel Luce Wilson and uh, Louis March um, and uh, trying to make a difference, trying to talk about uh, how to combat gun violence. And now we understand Toronto's getting $12.3 million from Ottawa to combat the roots of gun violence. My guest this evening is Marcel Wilson, or my guest this evening right now is Louis March. Um, and we're talking with him, uh, not so much Louis would say, it's not about the roots, it's about the seeds. Uh, and the 12 million boost, uh, is supposed to boost to help, uh, it's a million dollar, 12 million dollar boost to help com- uh, community groups on the ground tackle the root causes of violence in the city. Funding will support community led projects to combat ga- gang violence and activities among at risk children, young people and young adults in Toronto, and it will help address knowledge gaps around the impacts of interventions in gang violence. It will also help to provide strategies that will off-ramp so uh, that young people will at, who are at risk make good choices rather than some of the choices that can lead them down the wrong path. Toronto will be receiving $12.3 million from the federal government of the $250 million uh, in the Building Safer Communities Fund. My guest this evening right now is Louis March. How are you, sir? Very good, very good, my friend. Uh, glad to be here and always happy yeah. to participate in these discussions. Great. It's a pleasure to have you back, as always. Uh, so Louis March is the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. He's also my brother and my close friend, and he's one of those guys that are out there committed to making this happen. Uh, in other words, you know, if uh, people are on the ground, boots on the ground, so to speak, it's Louis and his team and Marcel Wilson and his team, uh, amongst others, that are doing a remarkable work. So, Louis, I was watching TV, and our and our brother Marcel was on, uh, was on TV um, being interviewed by a bunch of different people when this announcement came out and then lo and behold tory was making an announcement about the money with you know how they have people draped behind them that are usually ministers or people that are involved and sure enough uh sure enough our good friend uh, marcel looking absolutely sharper than attack by the way looks amazing uh was standing there does that mean that we're in the loop now that you guys are in the loop such that you're at the table and maybe some of this money might actually make a difference and come to you and your different organizations that are out there doing the real work? That's an excellent question. Look, we've been at the table. We've been advocating at the federal, provincial, and city level for years about the need to invest in communities uh, and get ahead of gang culture and gun culture. We've been at the table. We've been saying consistently the need to invest in communities. And they listen, but they don't do anything about it. They listen, and they never do anything about it because they always seem to have their own plan as to what to do. So uh, we've been at the table. We've been to Ottawa three times to speak to the feds. And we've taken gang people, mothers, victims of gun violence, so they, they can get uh, a more wholesome view in terms of uh, gun violence and what it's doing to our communities. 
but we've never seen them respond the way we wanted them to. So are we seeing that response now? I mean, again, I would I would imagine if, uh, you know, you, both you and Marcel have been uh, on uh, many, many shows and been interviewed many, many times. Um, but uh, we, we have to, um, you know, n- now that we're actually seeing some money coming to the city, um, you know, I, I guess the question is probably best to go to Marcel, who's who's joining us this evening. My also our, our good friend and brother Marcel Wilson, founder of One by One Movement. Buddy, you looked amazing on television. I was just telling uh, our friend here, uh, Louis, how amazing you looked, how sharp his attack. How you doing? I'm I'm well, thank you, and thank you for having me, brother. It's a pleasure. So the question I had for Louie, I'll ask you the same thing. You know, um, it's nice that you guys have been interviewed all over the place many times, many, many, many times. It's the first time I saw one of us actually standing up there behind Tory, uh, you know, normally where it's reserved for ministers and police uh, chiefs and people like that. And sure enough, there you are uh, looking, uh, like I say, sharp as a tack and right on the button, right? Um, are you there for window dressing or are we actually going to get to the table this time? No, no, you know, you know how it goes, man. We've we've been around for a minute. Uh, Louis March has been around for much longer than us. We've been made many promises, you know, uh, when it comes to delivering actionable items in our community, and we still have yet to see them. So we're going to stand strong. We're going to we're going to keep our hope alive and hope that the city, the federal government, whoever does the right thing. Okay, so. Um... I guess where I'm coming from is I was encouraged, frankly, uh, as I was telling Louie, I was I, I was encouraged when I saw you there because it's hard for them to ignore you when you're part of the backdrop. And I, when I say you, I don't mean to put it on you, Marcel, but you're the voice for all of us, um, you know, at least those of us that are trying to make a big difference here. But um, so now that they got you there, it's kind of hard for them to ignore you. I'm hoping that you're going to keep that foot in the door and they're actually start listening to, to what you, the two of you have been talking about. And if you're just joining us right now, I've got Louie Marge. He's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement and Marcel Wilson, founder of the One by One Movement, uh, both in the trenches forever uh, doing this kind of work. Um, buddy, uh, go take it back to Louis here for a second. Uh, Louis, you know, one of the things I heard Marcel say on his interview uh, was that the, that the work that's being done needs to be assessed, evaluated, uh, and somehow, you know, go through some form of metrics to, to decide if the money's being well spent, if it's going in the right direction. Um, are we getting closer to that? And if so, what are the two of you got in mind? We'll start with you, Louis. I think it's important to recognize that Toronto is a very resourceful city. When we put our mind to something, we normally achieve it. We're internationally ranked in many categories. When it comes to gun violence and gang violence, I don't think we've put our best foot forward. We have a lot of people doing a lot of work. There's a lot of money being spent. But is it good money or is it bad money? Is it good programming or is it bad programming? Marcel has spoken about this many times. Let's do an analysis as what is working and what is not working and what is working let's reinforce and multiply that work and what is not working move it out of the way like like you can't run a business and continue to be spending money and not getting results and then continue to do it so we're Uh, going to get 12.3 million dollars for the root causes of gun and gang violence where is that money going to go are we going to put more band-aids on band-aids or are we going to take a deep dive and find out what is really having an impact and invest in these areas? Because 
you know, between me and you, a lot of money, a lot of programming out there that if it was not there, we would not miss it. Yeah, I no kidding. Uh, yeah, well, jump in here, buddy. Marcel Wilson won by one movement. Go ahead. Jump in here. No, no, I 100% agree. Um, one of the things that we've been advocating for and pushing for is to make sure that the right people are being funded. This has been a fundamental issue for a long, long, long time. And we need to start calling out people. We, we, we need to start holding people accountable. And when I, when I talk about people, I talk about powers that be that have been in power for quite a long time, kind of the old guard. And we need to make sure that they're doing their job. We know they haven't because the crime rate has increased. increased. The, the, the murder rate has increased. So we know they haven't been uh, doing their job. It's time to let a, a, a new school take over. So when sitting down, and by the way, people need to understand, you know, it sounds like it's a huge amount of money. Uh, Mendocino, uh, who's part of the government here, says uh, working to raise maximum sentences for gun trafficking, providing additional crime prevention powers for police, working to implement a mandatory buyback program. That's the general political, you know, one size fits all things, although they say one size solution doesn't fit all. He says, though, the cooperation with community is key. Again, a lot of talk. Who from the community is amongst your group of people that are actually going to be key, so to speak, to helping the uh, the government, the, you know, the, the the municipal government, decide how they're going to spend that money. Well, you know what's interesting, Yona? I have a group of people, brothers, with me right now that are from different sectors and different parts of the community. Dal, say what's up. Hello. Anton, say what's up. How's it going? Hey, hey buddy. Hey, how's it going, brother? Right, hey, man. Different sections of the city. That are, yeah. that are here to make a difference. And, you know, there's only a very small few of us, a very, a very rare group that can get this done. And I, and I think these are the groups that need to be invested in. Yeah, I wish I was there with you. I'm a little bit jealous. I'm sure you guys are having a great time with uh, Firecracker <laughs> Night. Uh, I, I just know I'm missing a party for sure. Uh, but listen, I want to get back to this for a second. Um, so, you know, uh, Louis's been at the door forever. He's been to, you know, both of you, frankly. But uh, Marcel, I know, in a little bit, uh, not as long a period of time. But certainly, Marcel, and, and, and you and your guys, you've been at the doors. Both of you guys have been at the door forever. The, money's, the money seems to be flowing uh, close enough to the city that, you can almost smell it and touch it. I mean, twelve point three million isn't a lot, but it's a great start. Um, and Marcel, to, to you know, to your point, uh, and I heard it on your on your interview. Um, if we're going to spend the money, let's track the re- let's you know. For example, you know, I'll give you the same example in the in the world of uh, mental health and addiction. Lots of organizations are funded for government funded programs, and, and certain hospitals have you know certain types of programs that are fe- you know gov- federal you know, government uh, provincially government federal provincially funded through the government i'll get it tonight sooner or later um and there but there's no tracking of uh how many people come out of there sober how many people come out of there with less you know suicidal ideation they don't there's there's not a lot of of data um in the world of fighting gun and gang violence and youth violence and and youth gang activity there's not a lot of data when are these people going to realize government in particular when are they going to realize that you need to track this stuff so we know what we're doing well, think about it, Jonas. The old way of tracking it, right, is a university professor paying undergraduates that are from affluent parts of the city to interview, quote-unquote, so-called, you know, marginalized people or gangbangers. How do they have access? How do they even have access? I had, a, I had a, a Ph.D. one time from U.K. claim that he interviewed over 200 gang members in Toronto. 
this is crazy. I don't even know 200 active gang members in Toronto. So right. we have to start with the data. The data is, is what's important. And I think the government's starting to come around. I think they're starting to see who actually is out there putting in work. You know, my, my philosophy is outwork them. Yeah, I love it. Marcel, um, I mean, uh, sorry, Louis, uh, Louis March, Zero Gun Violence Movement, before we go to break here, and then hopefully you guys will stick around and we'll come back and do a little more. Uh, but, um, Louis, so, you know, of everyone that's out there right now, you've got the loud, you know, you might be the, the shortest in stature, but you've got the loudest voice. Um, are you planning to put yourself on the front lawn of these folks and keep, you know, keep waving the flag until they pay attention? Or I guess my question is, how do we make our voice heard before this money gets, quote, unquote, pissed away somewhere else? No, no, no. There's no pause button in our work. Marcel, myself, there's a lot of other soldiers out there doing the work. We, we, we don't have the luxury of closing at 5 p.m. In fact, sometimes that's the time we open up because yeah, no that's when the help is needed. Uh, yeah. We've got a major problem here. Money is being spent, but is it good money or bad money? So right. we're going to continue to advocate. I'm not sure what John Tory's plan is. The balls, well, maybe I should say the money is in his, is in his hands right now. Is he going to go to the same old, same old bureaucratic advisors or is he going to dare to be different? Is he going to be courageous and bold and actually go to the street and get correct data so that they can inform the decisions that they make? We right. will be watching. We will be participating where we can. But he's the one that's going to be pulling the punches. My biggest concern right now, Yona, is that there's a municipal election coming up in a few months. Yeah. And I'm not sure where the priority is going to go in terms of how we allocate this money because it's not easy to do. They might decide to go the the old formulas that they've used, and we know that's not going to work. Are they going to step out of the box and do something different this time uh, to make a real meaningful impact? When we come back from break, we're going to be joined again with Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, Marcel Wilson, founder of One by One Movement, close friends, my two brothers. We'll be right back. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yonabud 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You are on the Road to Recovery here with Yona Bud at 640 Toronto. I have two guests joining me this evening, Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, and Marcel Wilson, founder of One by One Movement. Uh, one of the announcements here, and we're talking about the $12.3 million being uh, spent or being given uh, for use in the municipality of Toronto to uh, help combat youth and gun violence and gang violence and so on. And uh, one of uh, Mendes' story, uh, Mayor Tory makes a statement, uh, when we combine our efforts together and put this new money to work and collaborate the way we have on housing, I'm going to throw up, uh, the way we continue to, to, to do on housing, the way we did in the pandemic, there's every reason to believe this is going to make a material difference as long as we make sure that at the same time we collaborate together, second time they say that, that collaboration includes every minute of every day, the community leaders represented by those behind us today, that would be Marcel based on that announcement, uh, because they are people who know best, Tory said. Well, can we start with the great job they've done on housing? <laughs> I don't think you want to go there. Yeah. Oh, like, honestly, like, really? Uh, like, really? That's what you're hanging your hat on? Like, we're in trouble if that's the benchmark, boys. Um, well, yeah. But, you know, 
But men, but but Tori did say, you know, clearly that the collaboration includes every minute of every day. I'm not sure where where the depth is there. Uh, I guess that means we're not going to stop. Uh, the community leaders represented by those behind us today. I, I I am going to be part of the organization that you guys uh, have going on here to make sure that we hold him to making sure that the people behind him that day of the announcement actually, you know, that they weren't there for window dressing and um, that they're actually going to get the funds. And you know what? I, I'm hoping this is a, this you know is what, a, Yona, you know, this is a feel-good meeting today. What, what their message was, yeah. one by one was standing there on behalf yeah. of a plethora of organizations from across the city that are actually putting in work. Right. So regardless of what their intentions were, we were standing there on behalf of. The problem is that amount of money over three years is a drop in the bucket. And unfortunately, exactly. that's what we've been seeing time and time again. We've been asking for sustainability. When you talk about housing and things like that, like we knew, the, we knew you know, some of the state, statements that were made were, 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 were funny to us because yeah. what we're going through right now for example, in the Swanson News community, where, where roofs are falling on people's heads, there's asbestos, yeah. there's rats, there's mold. There, there, there's a plethora of issues that are going on that have been happening in other issues across the city for, 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 for decades. Right. And, and this is not a secret. When we talk about root cause risk factors that lead to violence, this is one of them. We've said it time and time again. Poverty, systemic racism, systemic... Uh, social classism. These are the things that are leading us down this path, brother. Louis March, how do we make our voices heard louder? I think it's important. Look, we have an opportunity here. We didn't have the 12.3 the week before. The 250 million that they announced, they've announced it maybe four different times already. So at least now we're getting an opportunity to see some of that funding. So we have an opportunity. They're saying the right things in terms of supporting community-led projects, right? Uh, right, using data and evidence and crime statistics so they can invest where it should be going, right? Uh, right. They talk about collaborations. They're saying the right things, but saying the right things and doing the right things, there's a gap problem, yeah. right? So yeah. we're going to have to continue to be at the table. I was there uh, when they were doing the round table before the press conference and I was taking notes and they were saying the right things, but saying the right things, putting into bureaucrats hands sometimes comes out differently. And this is where we're going to have to be uh, advocating at a different level to ensure, because we may not get this opportunity again to interrupt the cycle of violence. Your opening comments about some people want to know why we continue to talk about this because we work with the families. We work with the, Mothers who have lost children to gun violence. We know the grief. We know the trauma. Yeah. And we yeah. know how it is recycled over and over again and comes back in other violent ways. We, don't, we can't miss this opportunity, Yona. So we have to be at the table and we have to use forums like your program here to let them know that we're watching and we're willing to help. But you need to break out of your traditional bureaucratic silos and really engage communities in a meaningful way. I'm talking to Louis March, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. Marcel, we got about a minute left. Uh, what's the plan over the next uh, couple of months to uh, try to hold them accountable? Well, get engaged. You know, find out who your local MP is. 
find out who your local MPP is. Make sure that they're taking action when it comes to, you know, extreme violence happening in your area. A lot of people that weren't involved are now involved. Things are happening, you know, Louis would always talk about the, the safe zones being breached. The safe zones are breached. This is becoming everyone problem. You know, find out what your local community, your, your local organizations are and support them. Louis March, uh, Marcel Wilson, two guys that are out there really making a difference. Thank you, brothers, and uh, we'll see you again sometime soon. Get you out here and uh, have fun tonight. Keep me in mind. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about you think you're okay because you only drink on the weekends. Well, there's a study out there that says you should think again. You're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. You're listening to the Road to Recovery here on 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Yona Bud. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Heather, and we all say hi. Um, call in. We want to hear from you, 416-870-6400, or if you're out of our area, 888-225-8255. want to talk to you about your drinking, if you drink at all. Speaking of drinks, I'm having some hot water with uh, some kind of raspberry-type jam-type thing that my housekeeper told me about that's supposed to, you know, help and, oh, whatever. It's delicious. That's what I'm drinking right now. So I'm wondering what you're drinking right now. Give us a call, 416-870-6400. And if you're one of those folks, and there's many, many, many out there, I hear from you, I hear from their families, I hear from your bosses and your brothers and sisters and wives and husbands, I hear about it. You think you're okay because you only drink on weekends. Okay, so you consider yourself a light to moderate drinker. So you have the occasional cocktail, maybe a glass of wine with dinner, right? Only tossing back a few extra glasses of something on the weekends or at a social gathering. So by most standards, you'd be right because drinking is typically tracked as an average over the week. So you'd consider yourself an average drinker, right? Well, this leaves many drinkers mistakenly assuming that a moderate average level of consumption is safe regardless of the drinking pattern. And really what we're talking about tonight is, in fact, the drinking pattern. Rudolf Moss, he's a professor emeritus of uh, psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, he said in a statement, uh, he's also the co-author of a recent study that found moderate drinkers above age 30 actually end up binging on the weekend defined as five or more drinks in a row or within a short period of time. What does your cycle look like? 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. The board is open. We'd like to hear from you. Call in. We're going to talk about it. You don't have to give us your name if you don't want to. Just want to think about, want you to sh you know share with us about what you think about binge drinking and how that works. Well, people who binged were about five times more likely, as it turns out, uh, to experience multiple alcohol problems, such as getting hurt, falling down, emotional or psychological problems. Remember, this is from a study. This isn't just my opinion. This is, this is like a real study. Um, and that they have to, uh, having to use more alcohol to get the same effect as time goes on, experience effects of alcohol at work, school, or caring for children, the co-author says, uh, who is Charles Holohan, professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, some pretty smart guys, right? Uh, what this means is the individual whose total consumption is seven drinks on Saturday night presents a greater risk profile than though someone whose total consumption is a daily drinker with, is a daily drink with dinner, even though their average drinking level is the same. So let, stay with me here, right? 
if you have seven drinks on a Saturday night throughout the night, you know, with meals, without meals, you know, whatever, preferably with some food, seven drinks throughout the course of your evening or afternoon or whenever you're doing your drinking, and you only do that on Saturday nights or Friday nights, and you say, well, I'm only drinking Friday nights, you're at risk, or if not greater risk, much greater risk, actually, according to the report, than someone who has a drink in the evening. Same amount of booze. So how do I know this? I know this because when I was diagnosed with diverticulitis, you can look it up. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, when I was diagnosed with it a bunch of years ago, my doctor said to me, do you drink? And I said, I have the odd shot on Friday nights with my uh, my uh, family, my colleagues uh, as a result of the Sabbath. So it's in the context of, you know, uh, drinking in a celebrate, celebratory kind of environment. So he says, how many shots would you have? I said, I don't know. I might have three or four, sometimes maybe five. Uh, of course, I don't do that anymore now that I'm not, you know, I'm not allowed to. It's not good for me. Um, and he said, well, you're, he says, how's that affect you? I said, I'm a little foggy on Saturday, you know, and by Sunday, I'm feeling a little better. And we talked about it. He says, you're better off to have a drink, you know, one drink in the evening for five evenings than that. It shocks your system is how he explained it to me. Binge drinking shocks your system. And then when you stop, so you pound, 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 right? Five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve beer. Come on, it's five or six or seven. Who are these people kidding? If you're out there and you're binging and you're, you know, it's a Saturday night and you're out with your boys, or your girls, or whatever, you're getting it, right? You're gonna you're gonna get buzzed for sure. So might be seven, eight, nine beers, right? Maybe three or four or five mixed drinks uh, for the ladies, because there is a difference between ladies and men or females uh versus males. Um, and it's a, uh, let me make sure that I, I make sure you understand that there's a physiological description. It has nothing to do with choices and how you identify. Uh, but uh, Saturday night drinkers are more at risk than those who drink daily with, with dinner. So pair that in mind. And most of the, the past research on binge drinking focused on the younger generation, typically teens and college students, uh, consuming multiple drinks at one sitting is widespread in that population, right? They don't have any exams. It's the weekend. Come on. That's what kids do. They get hammered. And, you know, that's okay. That's okay if you can control it. And it's once in a blue moon, I suppose. I don't like the idea of getting hammered. I don't think that makes any sense because you don't ever want to be in a position to not know what's going on in case something strange happens to you or others. Levels of big, but big drinking among adults may escape public health scrutiny, according to the report, but it occurs among individuals who drink at moderate average level, at moderate average levels. So at present, binge drinking among moderate drinkers is largely undetected in any setting unless your doctor asks you about it as a result of something that's not going well. You're not feeling well, something's breaking down, you're having digestive issues, you're having a lot of heartburn, uh, you're having some heart issues, maybe some, uh, a, little bit of, uh, a little bit of dizziness, right? And your doctor says to you, okay, so how many drinks you have? Well, doc, I don't have that many. Maybe I have a couple of glasses of wine at night for, you know, for dinner. The doctor says, every night? And you say, sure. I mean, there are actually doctors that tell people that it's okay to have a glass of wine every day. Uh, it's good for you. Well, how do you define a glass of wine? Anyway, we'll get there in a minute. Women are especially sensitive to the effects of alcohol, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Alcohol-related problems appear sooner at lower drinking levels than in men. That is a physiological description. Make sure you are all on that same page. I don't want to get hate mail. Women are more susceptible to alcohol-related brain damage, heart disease, than, and heart disease than men. And studies show women who have had one drink a day increase their risk 
of breast cancer by up to 10% compared to women who abstain. So big number, 10%, I don't know, anywhere from 5 to 10% actually. Um, but both men and women over 65 years of age increases a particular concern. Uh, um, the increase for risk is a particular concern because many older adults use medications, right? And many of the medications don't interact well. So I'm on something called gabapentin for my uh, leg pain, my nerve pain. Works really well with the nerve pain. But I have had, uh, I was out and I had a couple of uh, been a couple of events recently that I had to attend. And I had a couple of drinks, um, just shots, uh, primarily tequila these days. Uh, but, you know, very good tequila. I don't know if that makes a difference. Anyway, a um, couple of shots and, uh, it you know, it had the, of course, with tons and tons of food. But it had like triple the effect that it might have had previously, right? Because of this gabapentin, it, 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 it exaggerates the amount of uh, the buzz you get, if you will. It's just, it's not good. It's just not good. Uh, the study published by the American Journal of Preventive Medicine used several data, survey data uh, collected as part of the uh, midlife development in the United States study, which has been following a national sample of Americans between the ages of 25 and 74 since 1995, analyzed nearly 1,300 drinkers over nine years. Like, that's a real study, right? 1,300 drinkers over nine years and found that most cases of binge drinking and of multiple alcohol problems occurred among individuals who were average, moderate drinkers. A matter, so let's understand what that is. What's an average, moderate drinker? So one drink a day might achieve that average uh, by a daily drink with dinner or seven drinks on a Saturday night. While the behavior would not necessarily lead to alcoholism, the study found drinking an average of more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men or five more drinks on the same occasion was linked to alcohol problems within the nine-year study. The finding points to a need for alcohol interventions targeted at moderate average level drinkers in addition to conventional strategies focused on the higher risk but smaller population of habitually high-level drinkers. So how do you know if your alcoholism is a problem? One telltale sign is when your drinking is the beginning, is when drinking is beginning to interfere with your ability to go through your daily life. That's what experts say. Is it messing, is it messing with your day? Is it impacting your job? Are you calling in sick more often? Right? Is it having an impact on your, on your relationships? Are you hiding your drinking? So alcohol use disorder is defined as compulsively using alcohol despite having negative consequences from your use, such as impact on your relationships, your ability to function, as we said, over your job, whatever roles you have in your community, and so on. Be wary if you continue drinking despite negative impacts. So you continue to drink even though you know it's not good for you. It gives you heartburn, stomach aches. You don't have a good, uh, you know, you don't use the bathroom well in the morning and so on. It doesn't have to be calling in sick or working with a hangover. Sometimes it's just, you know, affecting relationships, having a few more disagreements. People in your life are expressing some concern that, you know, you look a little different. Why are you so edgy? You're in, you're, you're, your skin doesn't look so great. You're, you know, you're, you, you don't look very happy. When, and then you start hiding your drinking and lying about it. And it could be just a couple of beers a day that you're lying about. So here's a red flag. You're pouring big drinks without realizing it. According to the current American Health uh, Heart Association guidelines, call for no more than two standard drinks a day for men and one for women. And before we go to break here, what's a standard drink? Yeah, you've been waiting for it, right? 12 ounces of regular beer is a standard drink. Four ounces of regular wine is a standard drink. Or one and a half ounces of liquor is a standard drink. Many people pour huge goblets of wine, not realizing that's actually two or three servings, right? 
Uh, and some people pour double shots without realizing. They, they don't measure, right? Oh, that looks like a shot for sure. And then those tall cans, you know, I don't know how big they are. I think they're more than 12 ounces. I don't drink the stuff. Uh, pound a bunch of those, right? So we know that millions of uh, North Americans drink above those levels, even in pre-pandemic times. Uh, in 2019, some 66 million Americans had episodes where they were drinking higher than those recommended limits. So if you or someone is struggling with this kind of stuff and you have a problem, make sure you reach out to somebody. And if you're stuck and you need some help, you can reach out to me, 877-777-5808, and we'll hook you up with somebody who can help you. Or please look at other kinds of programs like AA, Smart Recovery, and such. So when we come back for break, we're going to do some more stuff here. We're going to talk about what happens if you go to the hospital because you're a little psychotic and not feeling yourself, and then all of a sudden the doctor... Yeah, man, pulls your driver's license, and you have no idea about it? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And if it happened to you, we want to hear from you, 416-870-6400. We'll be right back to the road on the road to recovery here. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. And where does the time go when you're having fun? If you're just tuning in, well, it's a little late, but hang in anyway. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host. This is 640 Toronto. We're almost done, and we got so much stuff to talk about. We're going to have to have you come back next week. Yep, same time, same station. We'll be doing the same kind of stuff, just different stories, different guests. We've got a lot going on next week as well. Um, I want a couple of things. I want to remind you, if you don't know where your loved ones are, you have to reach out and find them, right? So if you can't reach out and find them, you call 911. You should know where they are, your pets, your seniors, and so on. And quick shout-out to Natasha's Nana. Her name is Margaret. It's her birthday today. She's uh, sweet 16 for sure. So we just wanted to say uh, happy birthday, Nana, and um, hope you uh, have a great day. And the fireworks are all for you, Nana. I promise. That's what we're doing. Canada Day is all about Nana's birthday. Okay, real quick here. We don't have a lot of time, but you got to pay attention to this. Um, there's a, Her name is Carissa McKay. She checked into Thunder Bay Hospital for crisis care. Her, she was concerned about her depression. Three days later... She had her license suspended after a psychiatrist she doesn't even recall ever meeting reported her to the Ministry of Transportation. She's 24 years old, relied on her Hyundai seat sedan to shuttle between her nursing school classes and her two part-time jobs as she's caring for elderly patients. It was an absolute blindside. Medical condition reports, they're called MCRs, are little known but widely used provincial forms that medical professionals can file with the ministry when patients have certain potential dangerous conditions that warrant a license suspension. So typically, so when a report is su- submitted flagging these conditions, uh, result in a license suspension and almost impossible to get your license back. It's vulnerable to abuse, big time. Inconsistency and misjudgment by doctors and government officials. Um, it just, it goes on, right? Drivers who call for help results in suspension uh suspended license often face sweeping consequences some lose their livelihoods uh because they suddenly can't drive i mean suddenly you go in because you're depressed and you come out and you can't drive for a month because it takes that long to get your stuff sorted out right others lose trust in the healthcare system so they don't come back when they need it and then there's already those that are struggling with mental health issues and when this kind of stuff happens and it gets pulled out from their out from under them they became they fall into greater despair and many feel more suicidal and it exasperates their their bad their their unstable mental health frustrated drivers challenge their suspensions many of them um 
it takes a t- it takes time. It takes time. Um, uh, roughly a quarter of those sixty one drivers who appeal uh, ministry transportation officials cannot prove the drivers even had any of the conditions that they were enti- that the entire basis of their license suspension. So here, listen to this: never before seen Ontario insurance plan data obtained by uh, the investigators that were involved in this study show that April twenty two thousand eleven until the end of twenty twenty, Ontario physicians filed close to three hundred and fifty thousand. Of these MCRs, more than thirty-five thousand a year at a cost of twelve point five million in the public health care system. Physicians bill the province thirty-six dollars and twenty-five cents for each of these. So the most common medical conditions in the data were dementia, makes sense. Epilepsy makes sense. Someone has a stroke makes sense, right? But anxiety, alcoholism, drug dependence, okay, maybe if it's a DUI competitive, you know, you've had DUIs a few times and you're psychotic and whatever, maybe short term, reactive depression. I can like, you don't take a license away. Certain substance abuse disorders, psychiatric conditions such as, such as cognitive impairments, they trigger automatic license suspensions. People don't even know about this, right? Show the, the data shows that physicians also re- file reports under a wide range of conditions. Most MCRs are filed 2014 by dry, uh, for drivers 60 and over. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but I want to get to some stats here. One Ottawa sleep specialist filed more than four, sleep specialist, right? More than 4,800 average more than one every day over the past decade, worth more than $175,000 in billings. Another family, an emergency room physician in a GTA, filed 3,700 of those, and it goes on. Filed for things like, um, some of these people had things filed for things like urinary tract disease, right? Problem with urinary tract disease. That shouldn't keep you from driving. Um, that uh, things, what other things? Uh, some will have, when we try to get your license back, you want to, you know, get to the government. You try to get your license back. It could cost you between four hundred and eight hundred dollars in in fitness assessments and so on that neither the government nor OHIP pay for. Okay, this, this is getting your license taken away, and you don't even know about it, right? There's got to be so many people that have experienced this, such as myself, according to uh, one of the people in the in the study here. Uh, they're afraid to talk about things now. Who knows if some people go back to using it was a particular drug issue. Um, it's a big thing. Pay attention. If you find that you're going to the hospital for something or you're taking the lo- your loved one to the hospital for something related to mental health or perhaps they had a blackout issue as it relates to their drinking, um, Bear in mind that there's a likelihood, a very good likelihood, strong likelihood, that they're going to have their license suspended, and you need to get on top of that. You need to talk to the doctors and make sure that the license isn't being suspended, and if so, what's their reasoning so that you can deal with it immediately. Um, Problem is you go in and you tell somebody, I feel like I'm going to kill myself. I have thoughts about wanting to hurt myself. Uh, The wrong doctor takes it the wrong way. Uh, Often if the doctor reads the nurse's report, doesn't actually even examine you, I'm told. Again, I haven't had this experience myself. I've had patients with this experience many times who spend many months trying to get their license back. So if you show up and you sound, you, you know, you're showing up for help, make sure they understand that this has nothing to do with your ability to drive. This is just you're feeling a little uncomfortable and need some support. That's why you're there, right? You're not psychotic. You're not going to hurt anybody tomorrow and so on. And then in fact, if you are you know, not in a good way and you're not feeling yourself, then maybe it's time that you shouldn't drive anyway for a little bit. But better you do that yourself. Just put your keys away and uh, or, you know, give them to a loved one if you don't trust yourself. Uh, pay attention, though. Make sure that you don't get uh, mis, you know, uh, uh, 
unjustly have your license taken away from you. We got a whole bunch of stuff to do next week. We hope you're going to come back. We, uh, we look forward to it. You're the best audience ever. I love you guys. Uh, we really do uh, need your support. That's why we do this show. And uh, we're so happy that we get it from you on a week by week basis. Listen, if you're with somebody this weekend and they're close to you, you love them, give them a hug. Tell them you love them, remember? And like my mom used to say, may she rest in peace. And my mom used to say, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, better to say nothing at all. Anyway, it's Jonah Bud. Love you guys. As I said, we'll see you next week. You're on the road to recovery. 640 Toronto.